Frank just talked about the fact that um, last week was our, our 10th anniversary. And uh, that, was, that was amazing. It was just an amazing morning. It was just great to have everyone here. It felt like connection. There were faces here from, from years and years ago that we haven't seen in a while. So that was a great homecoming and a great connection. But I've got to tell you, this run-up to the 10th anniversary, this prep time especially that I did um, for the celebration last week and especially for the slideshow, has really been a journey for me. It's been a personal journey that, that I've needed to take, I guess, but at least it was, it was there. And it was a journey that reminded me emphatically once again that spiritual growth, the spiritual journey, is not an intellectual exercise. It's an experiential exercise. And I know I say that over and over and over again. Sometimes I just have to prove it to myself. And, and sometimes there are outside instances and circumstances that just take you to a place where you, you can't ignore it anymore. When we talk to people in recovery, we're telling them all the time, you know, all we can do here in talk therapy, in session, is to get concepts across, which are great. They're, they're needed. We need to have new concepts. We need to see a new there there. We have to part curtains so you can see the direction you're going. But until you start taking those first few steps, nothing changes. Nothing will change in your life if you just think about it. It's all about the doing in recovery, in learning a second language, in learning to play a musical instrument, in learning to ride a bike. It's muscle memory. The most ironic and interesting thing that I've learned is that the spiritual journey and spiritual growth takes place through physical, repetitive action. That is the weirdest thing. I thought I was supposed to pull away from the physical. I thought I was supposed to go into my spiritual cocoon in order to be more spiritual. Turns out, it's just the opposite. It's by moving into life. It's by engaging in physical activity. You know, prayer is a physical activity. Meditation is a physical activity. You coming here today playing music, engaging in worship. Those are physical activities. And if our presence is such, if our awareness is such, they will take us to spiritual places. They will bring about a spiritual awareness that can break us through into new places. And so the spiritual journey is something that you wish that you could just get all at once. And I'll tell you, there's been so many times in my life that I thought I had it all together. I thought I was really spiritually evolved, you know. And then you get your comeuppance and the next thing happens and, and you realize, oh, okay, there it is again. And so it's like the growth layers up. Or actually better, a better image, is that it layers down. It's taking layer after layer away of the stuff that obscures, obstructs, you know, distracts from what is really true in life. And so here I am prepping for this this 10th anniversary celebration, and especially putting together the, the slideshow. So I'm going through hundreds and hundreds, maybe up to 1,500 images or more, 10 years of images that I haven't looked at in you know, probably that long since they were first taken. And it was a real journey. It was an emotional journey for me. You know what the hardest thing about ministry is, at least from my point of view? Being a minister, being working in a church setting, the hardest thing for me is watching people leave. It's the hardest thing that I have to do. People come in, you like them, you imprint, you, you think you're friends, and, and then they move on. And to look at those photos over 10 years is to see so many people that have come and gone. So many people that I love so much, that love me, and many of them, are, are, we're still in contact. We still connect via email or whatever. They've moved to different places, different parts of the country. They've done this, they've done that. But it's a hard thing to do. And it was really working me as I was going through it, trying to figure out, you know, what is this all about? What is all this emotion all about? What is this bittersweetness all about? And it was all about missing the faces that weren't here. And for me, I suppose for anyone, it pushes all those Special buttons, the abandonment button that I was just uh, getting frank about, you know, but insecurity and inadequacy and, and, and worthiness and all those things that we worry about so much as human beings. I read across an article uh, just in the last couple of weeks, and I think it was six things that pastors struggle with. And so much of it was centered around these kind of issues. 
that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of abandonment, all those things. And people coming and going is just a huge part of that. And so I had to take a look at that. I really had to look. Last week I tried to express this as I was just talking and making my remarks. And I think the insight that, that I suppose I knew this, but came down in a much more clear way, is that this group, this group right here, this community is not set. It's not static. This group right here this morning is just a snapshot. You all decided to be here today. Something, nothing obstructed you from getting here. You know, the car actually started. Your alarm went off. All the things that happened that brought you here today. It's a snapshot in time. It's a snapshot in a moment. Every one of those photos that I was looking at, those hundreds of photos, it was a snapshot, literally, of a moment in time with a group of people that all decided to be together here at this place and this time. And we're together for a period of time. And then life moves on. It comes into focus and it goes back out of focus in terms of our connection with people. It's always ebbing and flowing. It's always moving. Remember that great quote from Heraclitus? I put it on your bulletin so you can take it with you when you leave. No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. It's as if these communities that we're part of are ebbing and flowing and flowing like a river. And so they're never the same. Every time we look at them, there's change, there's difference. And that scares us. That's something that's really difficult for us. Do you know the pain that I'm talking about? You know, when you look at something and you get that sharp stab in your chest, in your heart, or you feel like you get that kick in the gut, that, that turning in the stomach, these are physical feelings that are being triggered by these emotional responses, this pain. The temptation here when you're feeling that is to want to hold on, right? You're feeling disoriented. You're feeling disturbed. You're feeling upset. You're getting triggered. All of those warning whistles and bells are going off in your head. And so you want to hold on. You want to dam up the river. Hold on to it. See what you can do to this snapshot. (coughs) Now, in my defense, I tend not to do this so much. I've heard, and some of you have probably been through, in fact, some of you have told me about stories of moving from one church to another and getting the full court press, the third degree from the pastor, where they're holding on and they're trying, and they're doing everything that they can to get you to stay. And it's so difficult. It's so wrenching. I tend not to do that. You know, I'll smile and graciously tell someone who says that they're moving on for whatever reason, you know, that I'm, I'm, we're blessing them and we're always a part of their lives, we hope. But it still hurts sometimes. I just hope you will never know that. <laughs> because we all need to be free to go where we go. I remember the, the, the church, the first evangelical church that I landed in in my, in my 30s, the, the pastor was all about saying that you have to grow where you're planted. You know, in other words, you get planted in a church and you basically never leave, you know. But I thought, how could that be right? I mean, things change. Things move. When do you know you're supposed to go? When do you know? Uh, it gets crazy. But if we're really going to love each other, if we're really going to be in that kind of relationship, then we all have to be free to be here or not. Because if we're here under any sort of coercion, then it ceases to be love. And what's the point of what we're doing? And yet all those issues in the back, you know, are turning and cranking and and roiling all this thing up, you know. Now, I thought I was doing much better at this until I went through this exercise here and feel like, okay, stone not yet smooth here. I've got to take a look at this. To hold on, to try to hold on to people, to try to hold on to things as they have always been does three things. First of all, it exposes your codependence, you know. Why is it that I need you all to stay? Well, it, it's not for your benefit, really, is it? Because if you need to go, then I need to be able to support you in that. It's for me. It's because of my issues. And so this need to hold on, this resistance we feel to change, is exposing our codependence, the need that we still have that we're trying to extract vampire-like from other people. It harms the other person because they are no longer free to explore and do the things that they need to do. And, of course, it harms ourselves, 
because we're going through all of this angst, all of this stuff that's going on. And so the question becomes, is there another way to live in community? Is there another way to experience community? Uh... I think some of you have heard me talk about the Moken before. And if you've read The Fifth Way, there's a chapter devoted to them because they're such an interesting people. They're called the Sea Gypsies, and um, they occupy the area that's called the Andaman Sea between the coast of Thailand and Sumatra and Java. And that area there was the area that, that experienced that huge earthquake. Uh, was that 2001, 2002? You know, where so many thousands of people were killed. But not one Moken, M-O-K-E-N, not one sea gypsy died. These people are truly amphibious. They're amazing people. Their children learn to swim before they learn to walk. They spend as much as six months at sea, you know, in their small boats. And the Andaman Sea is a very shallow body of water dotted with islands, full of fish. And so they're out there, they're fishing. They can hold their breath up to two and a half to three minutes. Their hearts are, are enlarged and, and, and evolved in such a way that they can go down for deep dives to get the oysters and the other things that they, that they dive for. But the most interesting thing about them, and the reason I bring them up today, is in their language, they have no words for want, for when, for hello, for goodbye, or for thank you. There are no words in their language for these concepts. Now, if you don't have a word in your language for a concept, it's because you've never seen it, you've never experienced it, and you don't need a word for it, right? Indigenous uh, tribes living at the equator have no word for snow. Well, why would they need one? They've never seen it before. It doesn't come down that far. But to not have a word for when, to not have a word for hello and goodbye, this is a people, first of all, no one knows how old they are. No one marks birthdays or cares about birthdays. When someone leaves, there's no big goodbye. There's no sense of loss or feeling of sorrow at a person's departure. And when they return again, there's no big celebration or feeling. It's people just moving fluidly in and out of one eternal moment. With no word for thank you, with no word for want, there is no concept of personal ownership. Everything is communal. These people are truly a communal organism with multiple parts, living a single moment. You're either in the moment with them or you're not, but if you're not, you'll come back again, and it's just this totally fluid way. Now, as I describe this to you, you're probably thinking that sounds really weird and even kind of subhuman. How could I not feel a sting at the departure of a loved one? And how could I not feel the elation of their return? I'm not saying that they're better. I'm just saying they're different. There are different ways for us to model our communities, different ways for us to understand the dynamics of our communities. But maybe there's something that we can learn from such a radical expression of a here-now kind of existence, a here-now kind of experience. What can we learn from that? I think I've told you in here before a couple of times that in the last five years is the first time in my life, and I've been playing music since I'm, I'm uh, in fifth grade, right? But the last five years is the first time that I've actually enjoyed playing music. And I think the reason is that I finally got it through my head that I'm not going to be a rock star, okay? There's no agents out in the room. There's no scouts. There's no one looking at this. It's not leading anywhere. All the time that I was playing music, I was hoping it was leading somewhere. And I was always nervous when I got up on stage to play. Even when it was for church, I was still nervous. I was still so concerned about what people thought and how they experienced the music and if it led someplace. And so every moment that I performed was always just a means to another end. It was always just a bridge to get someplace else. And so I was never really there. I was never really present. I was out here someplace. And I was always nervous. And I thought about that. You know? This is a small church. Not this church, but the church that I started in. I was a small church too. And nobody remembers what you did from one Sunday to the next. You get a pass. You know? I could have my worst Sunday. I could have my best Sunday. By next Sunday, nobody remembers. But what I started to really think about was why was I there? I had it all back to front. I had it all turned around. I was nervous because I was thinking about myself. I was nervous because I was worried about what I needed to get 
out of each performance. And when I was able to turn that around and say, I am here to provide this musical bed for people on which they can lay their consciousness and lay their spirit and let it take them on a journey, I was able to start turning things around. And then, of course, the older I got, I just realized this isn't leading anywhere. This experience of music for me at this time in my life is exactly contained from downbeat to the time that the last chord rings out into silence. That's it. It's right there. It's right here. And it's right now. And anything out of sight of that doesn't matter. And I'm able to come up here and play. I'm not nervous. I just enjoy it. I love playing with these wonderful musicians. It is just such a privilege and an honor, especially my age, to be able to play with these guys. Now, what I was able to do for music is much harder for me to do with people. And I'm realizing that. The concept is the same. The principle is the same. But I suppose because performance is a step away from me, you know, you can like or dislike my performance, but I can still be here. But when you leave this community, that speaks directly to me as a person, and so it's more personal. It's harder for me to separate myself from that. I'm getting better at it, but man, it's still there. And so, how do we do this? How do we go about turning the focus around? How do we go about becoming better servers, better servants of people? How do we go about really focused, being focused on leaving people better than we found them? On serving the best interests of everybody who's in our sphere of influence? How do we go about doing that? I wanted to read you a little section from an article about one of the early church desert fathers. And we've talked about the desert fathers in here before, but just really quickly, in the 4th and 5th century, as the Christian church was getting allied with Roman power and becoming the state religion of Rome, that's when all the crazy abuses and, uh, and corruption started to take place. As pagan temples were turned into churches, as uh, pagan priests were, were offered the chance to become Christian priests or be killed or exiled or whatever, not much of a choice. As all of this was going around, the, pe- um, the people who really were looking for the deeper spiritual connection and deeper spiritual way were looking around saying, what in the world is this all about? Our society is a shipwreck, and if we're going to be able to help anybody, we can't be flopping around in the flotsam and the jetsam with everyone else. If we can get a foot on solid ground, then we are in a position to help somebody else. And so they fled out into the deserts of Egypt and Judea and Palestine. And there they formed communities, first as hermits and then groups. And it was the beginning of the monastic movement. And there's so many wonderful stories from these men and women, the desert fathers and mothers, about how they lived, about what their guiding principles were. And they're just concrete and they're folksy and some of them are really funny. But there is one father by the name of Serapion, and he is called Serapion the Sindonite. <laughs> Great word, huh? But Sindon simply means a, a coarse linen cloth, because that's all he wore. And I want to read you this, and look at his solution for being able to be the best possible servant that he can be. Serapion, named for the one sheet that served as his only garment. Serapion was a hermit in the Egyptian desert, a man whose acts of penance and mortification seemed superhuman. But after years of solitude and prayer, Serapion followed the call of God away from the desert to the notorious sinful city of Corinth. There he met a performer who, with his family, lived in complete ignorance of the gospel. Serapion wanted to evangelize them, but had no means, not being acquainted with them. Knowing that he couldn't easily form a friendship with the master of the house, he determined that the only way to impact the family would be to become their slave. And so a free man sold himself into slavery for the sake of evangelizing his captors. The monk-turned-slave then set about his work of evangelization largely by keeping his mouth shut. How about that? He carried out the most objectionable tasks with no complaint, fasting much, sleeping little, and speaking less. When he did speak, however, his wisdom was evident even to the most hard-hearted members of the household. Little by little, his quiet witness won over his master, who with his whole family was baptized and began to live a virtuous life. Grateful for all his slave had done for him, the master offered him his freedom. Only then did Serapion explain that he had modeled himself on Jesus Christ, 
who had taken the form of a slave out of love for men's souls. Leaving there, Serapion made his way to Lidesimon, where he discovered a widow in great need. Again, he made himself a slave, selling himself to a heretic and giving the money to the widow. Within two years, the whole family was reconciled to the faith, and Serapion was once again given his freedom, this time with a coat and a cloak and a book of the Gospels to boot. But Serapion was incapable of keeping anything for himself. When he saw a half-naked beggar, he gave him his cloak. A little ways down the road, off went his coat for a freezing old man. On he went with only his sindon. And when asked who had stripped him, he held up his book of the Gospels and cried, It was this book that did it. Shortly thereafter, he sold even that book to prevent a man in debt from being thrown into prison, saying, It seemed to me as if the Gospel was constantly crying out to me, Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. So I sold the book that told me to sell everything and give to the poor. So consumed with the needs of others was Serapion that when asked by another monk who owned many books for a word of wisdom, Serapion responded, What shall I say to you? You have taken the living of widows and orphans and put them on your shelves. This is a tradition. It's ascetic. It's radical. You know, the other one who comes to mind when we think about something like this, someone living like this in this kind of sense of community, is Francis of Assisi. You know, if any of you know the story of Francis of Assisi, you know that he was born into a very wealthy family. His father was a rich businessman who traded in in silks and fine, fine textiles. And so Francis was a crazy romantic kid, entitled, kind of bratty, you know, he goes to war when Assisi was fighting Perugia and he's captured by the Perugians and held in a prison for a year before he is released. And in that time in prison, he sees visions and he starts to question everything about what's going on. And when he returns, he becomes his father's worst nightmare. He is the oldest of seven children. And so he was the heir apparent. He was the one that his father wanted to follow in his footsteps and take over the business and Francis was just going in other directions, constantly bucking at everything his father said. His father would lock him up in his room. He would tell his wife not to feed him. He beat him, but nothing was changing Francis' desire. Father gave him some money to buy some textiles to do some business. What did Francis do? He gave it away to the church to feed some, some poor people who needed it. What did his father do? He sued the church and sued Francis through an ecclesiastical court to get his money back because he didn't know that this was going to be done and he didn't think that the donation was valid. And in the process of that trial, Francis stands up and takes every shred of clothing off because it was from his father's house, puts it in a pile and renounces the clothing, renounces his name. No longer was he Giovanni Bernardone, he was now Francis, which is his nickname, means Frenchie. He was so enamored with French romanticism, his friends called him Frenchie. And he took that name. Of course, everyone was, you know, appalled. He's staying there stark naked. The, the bishop takes off his kappa, his, his hooded cloak, and puts it around him, and tells his servant to bring him a tunic, which he does. And then Francis goes off. He was raised in Upper Assisi, where the Majores lived, the upper class. In the lower part of the town, the menores lived, the minor class, the lower class. Francis didn't even move there. He moved out to the plain on the lower part of Assisi where there was a leper colony. And lepers are not just those that have Hansen's disease in the ancient world. They were anyone who was an untouchable. It was a caste system. And so these people were out. That's where he went to live. And there was a church in need of repair. It was complete ruin of San, da- San Daniamo. Damiano, and he starts repairing it, and people start following him. And before you know it, he's got hundreds of people following him because of the strength of his resolve to remain living in poverty, to be mendicant, to be a, a beggar class. And all throughout Francis's life, he never took holy orders. He never was ordained a priest because he thought that that would elevate him too high. That would create a conflict of interest and a temptation to start collecting things. Francis wasn't just being poor for its own sake. He was being for, poor to connect to the people and also this idea of what he called non-appropriation. 
not taking to himself and being identified by things. The Franciscans still to this day wear a white rope around their waist instead of a belt. Because in those days, your belt was also your wallet, and so this showed that you had nothing. They call themselves the Order of Friars Minor, the Little Brothers, in recognition of this. These radical statements of, of a way to live in community, to our ears, what do we do with them? What do we do with stories like that? How are we supposed to process them? You know, I'd say the first thing that we need to do is we need to realize that there's a certain amount of hyperbole in ancient writings, a certain amount of legend and figurative speech that builds up. And so we don't know what's true and what's not. And so we have to keep that in mind as we're trying to look at ourselves against them. But the second thing that we need to do is not to compare. Because as soon as we compare, we come out the losers. They're way up on this pedestal that may or may not even be physically true. But if we compare ourselves to them, then the guilt sets in. Then all of the negative emotions set in. I remember back in the 80s, I was a real tree-hugging kind of ecologically sensitive young guy in my 20s, right? And uh, I felt guilty all the time. Every time I turned on a water tap, I felt guilty because there were thousands of people who didn't have potable water, right? It was save the whales, save the trees, save the rainforest, you know? Every time I threw something away, I felt guilty because the landfills, I mean, what are we doing here? And all the stuff is going. It was this constant feeling of guilt. To have the food maybe felt guilty because others didn't. This is not a way to live. Constantly comparing ourselves, constantly thinking in the macro, when we live in the micro, we live one-on-one. And so the third thing that we need not to do is then to move, the third thing we need to do is then move to the principle. What is the principle of the story? He said it's not poverty for its own sake. It's this idea of not being attached to our belongings, because something changes when we detach. Something changes when we move away from needing them. Take a look at what Jesus says at Matthew 8, verse 19. A scribe comes up to Jesus and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay kind of a non sequitur. What the heck? You know, I'm just saying I want to follow you. What's this all about? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, the standard interpretation is that Jesus was homeless. Jesus was itinerant. He had no place to live. You know, that could be true. But did you know that there are scholars and there's evidence, if you really read the Gospels carefully, that Jesus did have a home and it was in Capernaum? Because it talks about Jesus going to his home. And I know the pronouns are ambiguous and it could be his home or someone else. But many scholars believe Jesus had a home and he had people over to his home. And if he had a home, then he had to have a day job. He was a carpenter or a mason, some kind of craftsman of that nature. And many scholars believe he did have an actual craft. He had a vocation, just like Paul was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter and he maintained a house. And, if you're ready for this one, there are some scholars who believe that Jesus would have been married too. Because to be unmarried in that culture was unthinkable. And since the scriptures don't say one way or another, to have someone living in such a different way would probably have been mentioned. I don't know if that's true. But it's a possibility that Jesus actually had a home life of some sort, had work that he went to. So if, he's, if he did, or even if he was itinerant, is that really what he's talking about when he talks about foxes and birds and that he has no place to lay his head? What he's really talking about here, I think, this person is saying, I will follow you. This is a scribe. This is an entitled person. This is one who stands at the top. He's expecting Jesus to create this new kingdom that they understood as a political kingdom that was going to throw out the Romans and create a sovereign, Judea. Jesus is telling him, hey, if you follow me, it's not a glamour job. It's not going to be like that. There is no physical kingdom that I'm establishing. There are no visible means of support that are going to go along with this. 
If you're going to sign on with me, it's going to be a very different experience than the one that you're expecting, the one that you're envisioning. To follow Jesus is to sever attachment to our personal desire. Whatever distracts, whatever blocks, whatever obscures truth that sets us free, that's what Jesus is trying to get us to step away from. Because Jesus is all about freedom. All about freedom. Complete freedom. Freedom from fear in all of its forms. The paralyzing anxiety that so many of us feel. The guilt, the insecurity, the abandonment issues. The freedom from just those stabs in the heart or those punches in the gut when someone leaves your life, leaves your sphere. We can be free of all of that. And Jesus expresses this idea of non-attachment in radically different ways. Take a look at the rest of these citations on your insert. Or Brendan will be, put, Brendan will be putting them up. Mark eight thirty four. If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross, the most radical image of humiliation, of loss that a Jew could muster. Pick up your cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. He's talking about all the things that we attach that we think we need for our lives. Attached to all these things, these processes, these things that we do. Unless you can step away from that. You're never going to be able to go where I go, which is into this place of complete freedom. Freedom from fear. Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is really weird. Especially in that culture, this would have smacked them up the head like a shovel. Because honoring your father and mother, being a part of a family, was tantamount to life itself. It was survival to be within the family. But Jesus is trying to get in there and make this point that even those things that you cling to that are so essential, so foundational to our life as a people, unless we can move away from those, we're not going to be able to experience the freedom. It's not that you neglect them. And hate doesn't mean hate the way we think. It's just to prefer less. But it's finding that balance to be able to be both citizens of heaven and earth. Luke nine fifty nine, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That seems another, another one just seems crazy in our language. But in that culture, to bury father doesn't mean that father was already dead and I just need to go bury him. It would mean to stay in the family and live as the firstborn until the father died. Take the inheritance and move through. Or perhaps it was a second burial. Jews typically had two burials. They would bury the corpse unembalmed, unpreserved, and when it completely decayed within a year, they'd go back into the tomb, gather up the bones, and put them into an ossuary, usually a stone or wooden box, and bury that. It could be he was talking about that. But when Jesus looks at him, he understands. The man is making excuses for full commitment, full extension. He's finding ways to cling on to something familiar because the real following into the unknown that is the experience with Jesus was too much. And the last one is the same. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying every way he can to get us to understand If you really want this complete freedom, this, look at the truth that will set you free. This is what it takes to let go, to be able to let go. That's what's going on here. And so the central question for all of us should be, how do we get to this place of non-attachment? What does it really mean? What are the steps that we need to take? And Jesus has an answer for that too. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now this one is usually just superficially interpreted to mean condemnation. Don't condemn others. 
Don't put them down. Don't make yourself higher than they and they lower than you. But there's so much more here. To judge is to compare, yeah? It's to choose good or bad, better or worse, right or wrong. It's to make these judgments based on some standard that we have in our heads. And Jesus is saying, as soon as you do that, something happens to your worldview. Something happens to the way that you look at life. The standard by which we view all things is then put on us, not by God, but by ourselves. And it colors everything that we look at. It means to have set opinions about things. We have opinions, we have biases, we have ideas and standards. And in this really terse, small, short saying of Jesus, it's hard to get his full point. And I know I'm extrapolating a lot here. I'm sure there was much more that Jesus said about this subject that was left unrecorded in the New Testament. You know, John tells us, you know, you could fill libraries with the things that Jesus said. We can only get this much into this book. Now, this is where I typically get in trouble bringing in another tradition, but I want to read to you from another tradition because I think what Sen Su is saying here is so descriptive of what Jesus is saying here. I think they're saying the same thing, but to read it in an expanded form, to read it from another tradition, I think it helped give us a sense of how we're going to get to this place of non-attachment. Sen Su, who lived uh, around 600s uh, A.D., so some five centuries after Jesus, he writes, the way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Huh? (laughs) It's kind of like Scott Peck's, Peck's book, remember? First line, life is difficult, but once you accept that it's difficult, it's not difficult anymore. The way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things are not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect, like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglement of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things and such erroneous views will disappear by themselves. When you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. As long as you remain in one extreme or the other, you will never know oneness. Those who do not live in the single way fail in both activity and passivity, assertion and denial. To deny the reality of things is to miss their reality. To assert the emptiness of things is to miss their reality. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. Grasshopper. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. (laughs) It's so cryptic, isn't it? It Sounds irrelevant, sounds unattainable, you know, nice sounding platitudes, but is there anything here for us? Is there anything with teeth and traction that we can dig into that's going to take us where we're trying to go here? to find this new way of living community that brings with it a sense of of peace, serenity, connection, ability to fully engage in relationship, even as faces continue to come and go. The truth of the matter is this is very practical, completely practical. And the bottom line is, as soon as we choose an opinion, as soon as we make a judgment, we are no longer free to see the truth. When have you ever had the full truth of anything? When as human beings are we able to have the absolute full truth of everything? You know, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, the, the, the answer to everything. When are we ever going to have that? 
You see, in truth, for us as human beings, what we believe to be true is just a snapshot of what we believe, right? It's just like the community. It's just a snapshot. What we say we believe, what we live as if we believe, is just a snapshot. Do you still believe exactly as you believed as a child? Or has your belief system changed? Do you believe the same as you believed 10 years ago? Five years ago? Haven't your beliefs changed, refined, grown? Haven't insights deepened? I hope so. I certainly hope so. And what will you believe in five years, ten years, or whatever? It's this rolling wave front of revelation as we live our lives, as we increase in wisdom. And so to say that anything is absolutely set, monolithically set, is to kill ourselves to stop any new apprehension of truth. We no longer can see what is right in front of us. We can only see our standards. We can only see our opinions. This is what Jesus is talking about. Don't judge. Because as soon as you do, the standard you set is applied to you and you can no longer see the truth that can make you free. You will never be able to be free of the fears that drive all the obsessive compulsive behavior. If we can hold lightly to our opinions, we've got to have them. We've got to choose something that we believe and we have to live as if that is true and see where it takes us. But if we can hold lightly to them, realize that they're just an approximation of the full truth, however deep they may seem to be. That makes perfect sense to me. I hope it's opening up space in the curtains for you. And why do we judge in the first place? Why are we constantly trying to have set opinions about things, hold these opinions? Well, it's all about control, isn't it? It's all about judging. It's all about control. How many of you have seen The Shack, the movie The Shack? You like the movie? Uh, did you read the book uh, however many years ago that it came out? You know, The novel that came out that has just been made into a movie was interesting because it was so ambiguous <laughs> and it was so you know, full of these rich images and, and you know, mind-twisting images and, uh, and entertaining, you know, full of great characters that it really caught the imagination. It sold like 20 million copies. The book and the movie's been doing well. And evangelicals and conservative Christians, they were uncomfortable with it, but they didn't know quite how to attack it or what to say. Well, guess what? William Paul Young, the, the uh, author of The Shack, has now come up with a nonfiction book called Lies We Believe About God. And now he is laying down exactly what he believes, what his opinions are about his faith and about theology and doctrine that was the undergirding, the foundation to the shack as a novel. Now, conservative Christians and evangelicals have something they can really pinpoint. I was reading an article by a Christian reviewer just scathing, just ripping apart from top to bottom you know, what uh, Paul Young had written. And I've read these things over and over again. I've been part of them myself. I stand outside the box of, of mainstream Christianity. And so the last uh, 20 years have always been fraught with, with uh, this kind of conflict and this kind of, of uh, debate, I suppose. But even the author on the other side talks about that these aren't certain truths, but he speaks of them as if they are certain. And so here's, here we are back at loggerheads and all these things. And we're right back to the, the, the problem here, that there is no winning such a debate. When people's opinions are set in stone, they're not listening. They can't see another side. They can only see what they already believe. It's right here. It's right in front of them. It's the same thing with our political de- debate. There is no moving the needle anymore. People are set. You know, you could show them complete new facts and it won't change a thing. In religion, in politics, in ecology, in all these issues that we find ourselves embroiled. And of course, it leaves the relationship in tatters. I'm reading this thing and it just makes me so tired. <laughs> to, to Here we go again, you know, another round of this. But then... I find another article that I'm reading about how Christians are supposed to feel about uh, immigration and the refugee problem. And guess what? I find myself getting really irritated, really angry. And I'm finding myself wanting to get down to the bottom to see if I can leave a comment, you know. 
<laughs> and then all of a sudden I stop and I just have to laugh at myself. There it is again. There it is again. Why was I getting upset? Because I had a set opinion that I didn't even know I had. And yet this guy was pushing that button. It is so sneaky. It is so difficult to see this in ourselves. Use your offenses. Are you easily offended? Then you've got a lot of opinions to defend. Right? That's what that's all about. Are you easily offended? Do you get upset by things that other people say? What's your first reaction to hearing something that is outside of the box of what you think you believe? Use your offendability. Use that irritation. Use that resistance to another person's opinion, another person's truth, quote-unquote, to be able to gauge where you are in terms of how attached you are to your judgments, how attached you are to your opinions, how much you pledge allegiance to the standards that you've created for yourself or that you've let others create for you. It's going to lead you like a laser-guided missile to right to your place of opinion if you will do that, if you will let it go there. In our fear, think about it. In our fear, we can't stand uncertainty. Uncertainty is the last thing we want when we're feeling afraid, when we're feeling insecure, when we're feeling inadequate. We want to make everything certain. And emotionally, our opinions... This emotional pledge of allegiance to the right, quote-unquote, side equals security to us at the deepest levels, subconscious levels. Not, we're not thinking about this. This is what it feels like, and this is why we hold on for dear life. If we're going to see the truth, we must let go of our opinions, of our preferences, of our judgments. As long as I think it's bad when people leave this community that I'm never going to be able to see, to see the truth of how communities really function. I'm never really going to be a good member of this community that allows people the freedom to create a launching pad here to be able to go out and do whatever it is that they're going to do, whatever direction their life may be taking them. I will be a hindrance to that process. I will be impeding that process. I will be abusing them in one way or another. But as long as I think it's a bad thing, I won't be able to see that truth. I can't go there because all I can see is what I already believe. If we pledge allegiance to our opinion, we will resist the truth. We will be offended. And this goes all the way to the core all the way to the core of who we are, all the way to the core of our faith as well. Just last week I was sitting and talking with a woman and she's going through that crazy transition in her life spiritually. And she finally asked me after we were talking for about 45 minutes, she said, how was it that you found this Jesus that you're talking about? How did you find this Jesus that sounds so different than the Jesus that I grew up with or that I've been taught? And I told her the story of my life that I'm not going to go into right now. But you know what it came down to? It came down to the fact that eventually I got pushed so far into a corner, so far into the place where I didn't know even what I didn't know anymore. I got pushed to the place that I was willing to let go of my allegiance to Jesus. I remember saying to myself, if this is Christianity, then I don't think I'm a Christian. And if this is who Jesus is and what he's telling us to do, then I don't think I'm a follower of Jesus. I had to get to the point where I was finally ready to sell the book that told me to sell everything and give it to the poor. The last thing that I was clinging to, I had to be ready to let go of. And I don't know how that sounds to you, to finally be willing to let go of Jesus. But the moment that I finally was able to do that, to finally say, I don't know who this Jesus is, I don't know if I want him in my life. That was the moment that I was finally on the path to seeing him for the first time as he is, not as I wanted him to be or needed him to be or as others had told me that he was. I was on the path to meet him for the first time 
as he presents. And that has made all the difference. All the difference. This life, this living in community, this anxiety that we feel, this fear that we live with, it's not our natural condition. It's not the way that we're supposed to be. Jesus is showing us there is a truth that will set us free from all of this. But in order to see that truth, we have to let go of everything that we think we know, all these expectations. In fact, we even have to be willing to let go of Jesus himself so that we can finally see what is right in front of us. That's the way this works. And it's disturbing and it's difficult. But there's nothing better Along this way in my life, I met this Jesus that I had never met before. And I know to my socks I will follow him till the day I die. But this relationship that I have with him will constantly be changing and growing and deepening. And it will surprise me every single day if I'm willing to be surprised. If I'm willing to hold lightly to everything that I think I know at any given moment and just let spirit play through. That's kingdom. That's the eternal life that Jesus talks about. Life that is eternally new and vibrant and alive and surprising, even shocking, right here and right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for everything that you give us, everything that you have given us since the beginning of time. Thank you for the witness of the scriptures. Thank you for the followers that have shown us with extreme lives, with beautiful simplicity, what this looks like to really follow you. And so for those models, help us to scamper after. Help us to continue to lay down the things we need to let go of in order to see more and more of who you really are. Thank you, Father, for loving us this way. Thank you for never leaving a stone unturned on our behalf. Never let us forget we can only love in return because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's all stand.